Welcome back to the Deer Vein Podcast, everybody, where we hunt hard and hunt smart. So that's my new tagline for anybody who's been around for the last 12 episodes. Uh, I'm solo by myself today, and I feel like that tagline fits because a lot of us do hunt very hard. We spend a lot of time in the woods, and uh, and the only thing that, that can best complement that is hunting very smart. You know, you can sit in the wrong place for hours on end, and that's not very intelligent. So on the podcast and through all my content on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, the main objective is to hunt smart. So trying to figure out how we can be very intentional with our time that we do have because uh, like me and probably most of all of you guys out there and gals, uh, we don't have unlimited time to spend in the woods. So what limited time we do have, we need to be intentional with it and we need, and hopefully uh, be successful with that limited amount of time. Uh, so today, again, by myself, solo, and I wanted to talk today about kind of the post-gun season. A lot of states are wrapping up gun season. It's already wrapped up, or it's in the middle of it, or, um, you know, you got a couple days left of gun season, and the deer patterns just really change after gun season. Uh, you have during archery season and prior to gun season, deer are generally in their kind of natural habitat, natural patterns, natural states. You got the rut that's going on. So it's kind of throwing things out of whack, but in general deer aren't really tuned into the fact that they're uh, being hunted heavily and being heavily pressured. So, you know, in Wisconsin, for example, I think there's 150,000 or so bow hunters that take to the woods. And then for gun season, there's 550,000. So, you know, the pressure, like that pressure just really builds up as I'm, as I'm, uh, sure all of you are well aware. So what does season look like after that gun season? You know, what do the deer patterns do? Uh, how do they change? How can we capitalize on them? Because, uh, this year I do have not filled my buck tag yet. I've had a pretty rough go of it. To be honest, I've been hunting pretty hard, leaving my family a lot. I got a nine month old that, uh, that's been hard to leave pretty much every weekend for the last five weekends. Uh, you know, kind of cutting my Sundays short to get home and be with the family and whatnot. But uh, at the same time, we got a new property, uh, first private piece of property I've ever had to my family's name. And uh, I've been trying to figure it out. And man, it has been a challenge for sure. There's a lot of swirling winds, deer patterns kind of seem to go wherever they feel like going. I don't have them really figured out yet. I'm always 20 yards. If I have a nice buck come through, I'm 20 yards off the good spot. Um, there's just a lot of things that were going wrong, but the bottom line is I have not filled my buck tag yet. So I'm still, I haven't even filled a tag yet, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, the does have been eluding me as well, but, uh, at the same time, I'm having fun learning this brand new piece and, and getting the lay of the land there. And hopefully you know, next year I'll have a much easier go of it. I'll spend a lot of time out there uh, this spring scouting and walking and scouring. And I like to leave my cameras up uh, pretty much all year round. I don't, I don't run them from like April to uh, August for really no reason, but, uh, but I leave my cameras up a lot so I can just keep gaining that information, that intel. But anyway, to, to the point, uh, I've, I don't have my buck or doe tags filled and it's coming into late season and I'm focusing my efforts on how am I going to fill my buck tag and how am I going to fill? I got four doe tags to fill as well. Uh, I would really like to subsist on, 
uh, venison for the year for my family. That would be a great uh, objective of mine. I've done it once before with just my wife and I. We had a, a three deer in the freezer, and that kept us pretty good for a whole year, um, mixing in chicken and whatnot. But at the same time, you know, I'd like to fill those tags, and how am I going to do them? So the first thing to recognize is that deer patterns change after gun season. Deer kind of go into their hidey holes and they don't come out for a few weeks. Uh, Wisconsin's uh, deer hunting season ended on December 1st. So this is December 2nd. So uh, yesterday was the last day. And now for the next week or two, deer are kind of going to be hold up and holding fairly nocturnal. Um, if you watch a lot of trail cameras and you have cell cams out or anything like that, you'll notice that the deer patterns really drop and daytime activity is really down and nighttime activity, nocturnal activity is really up. And that's generally just due to the pressure. Deer understand that they're being hunted. They don't want to die, of course. So they're going to go into their uh, little hidey holes and stay there all day rarely moving barely moving and then get up and move at night so uh how that looks is that you're going to need if you're hunting over the next couple weeks you're going to need to get as close to those bedding areas as possible and the reason i say that i mean i say that all the time but this time more than ever because they are so pressured and they don't want to move at all during the day and if they move 5 10 15 yards they're going to move out of that bedding area and that's where you're going to need to be. I was able to capitalize last year on some public ground during this time frame. Uh, there was, was actually an extended rifle season um, in some metro or an ex extended gun season in some metro units around Wisconsin. Wisconsin has these things called metro units, which are kind of around Madison and Milwaukee and like Eau Claire and Green Bay. They're kind of subunits within the state that because it's such a high population density for people, they allow hunting longer and they extend seasons there and whatnot just to trim the herd a little bit more. But anyway, I was in a, on a piece of public on a metro subunit and uh, I ended up luckily stumbling into a bedding area, just got set up. And uh, I watched the deer stand up, <laughs> didn't even know they were there, watched them stand up, walk right to me, and I was able to capitalize. And I got a great doe last year during this time frame. So that is what you're going to need to do is get close to those bedding areas in the next week or two. But as we move on, like just the late season game changes, changes back to essentially what early season one was, which is food is king. Uh, you know, you got early season where you're just about the soybeans and food plots and whatnot. That's where you're finding deer. And then you got kind of the pre-rut and the rut where you're looking at scrapes, rub lines, you know, kind of doe bedding areas, travel corridors, pinch points. And that's what you're doing there. And now late season's coming around and you're looking more towards uh, back to those food sources. And the food sources that are were great in the early season might not be so great in the late season. You know, food plots are probably gonna be good year round as long as they're green, you're good. Corn was not very good early season and and is great now in the late season. Soybeans was great in the early season and isn't as great now if they're cut. Standing soybeans are phenomenal food sources. Alfalfa is a great food source because it's still green. Cut corn is great. Uh, 
or picked corn, I should say, when they go around and chop it, that stuff's very bad because they don't leave any corn. There's no food there. But essentially, you know, picked corn, standing soybeans, alfalfa fields, green food plots are going to be phenomenal in the later season. Uh, you start looking at some acorns. Deer will still be eating acorns if they can find them. Uh, apples are pretty much mushed up and they're not that great in the late season. So as you move on uh, into December and mid-December, late December, you're going to start changing your tactics and you should be going back to those food sources. The colder it gets, the more the deer need to move, the more calories they need to eat. And that's what those big bucks are doing as well. You know, kind of the ruts really wrapping up over the next week or so, which we'll kind of touch base on the second rut. But the ruts, like I said, the ruts wrapping up and really what your bucks are going to be doing is going, okay, now I'm done, you know, chasing does. I need to refill my belly and get ready for this winter. I've been running around for the last month just trying to chase does. And uh, now I need to put that fat back on so I don't die of starvation over the winter. So they're going to be really keen in on food sources again, and they'll be mixing back in with the herds and deer will herd up the later it gets because food becomes limited, bedding becomes limited, and they really just start pooling together and uh, just focusing on, you know, just a few food sources. That's why in the winter, you know, you can go around and see 40, 50, 60 deer out in a field because that's kind of the only food source around in that area or that's the only good bedding area around in that area. One of the things I like to think is true and this is not substantiated by any fact or anything but as the vegetation falls and the later the season gets bedding areas shrink because if you think about it in the early season when foliage is everywhere, uh, cover is everywhere, deer can essentially bed just about anywhere because they can hide very easily. You know, all they have to do is play the wind and they can just lay down and you never see them. But in the late season, that vegetation is gone. That cover is gone. Uh, wind is a big factor because the windier it is in an area, the colder it is. So they're going to try to get into areas that have little wind and a lot of cover. And those areas are pretty finite in the late season. And one of the things that, like I said, one of the things I like to think about with those areas is that those become core bedding areas. I call those are the, those are the, on a, you know, on a hundred acre farm, you might have in the early season, 10 bedding areas where deer generally like to bed. But as the winter goes on and on, those 10 areas boil down to three. And those three are core bedding areas, in my opinion. And that's where you will find deer year round like that is the that is the very safest home ranges because those areas are good any time of the year to be at you know it's kind of like if you had a summer cabin um you know you live in madison but you have a summer cabin you know up in northern wisconsin yeah your suburb cabin you use frequently during the summer but really your home area is your home in madison and that's kind of what those core bedding bedding areas are uh, so I hope I kind of drilled that into your head and you're going to find those in the late season. Um, because like I said, they're just so finite and I like to keep tabs on those year round because, um, deer just use those year round. They're a great area to, to find, to drop trail cameras outside of and just gather a lot of information. So 
you find those core bedding areas, you find the food source that they're on, and then you hunt that travel route between the two only on the winds that are good. I know I beat that <laughs> core bedding area. I feel like I'm just talking in circles about it, but I can't um, explain how uh, how important I think they are because they've been extremely helpful to me, especially on public land when you're really struggling with where do I find deer, you know, going out in January, February, and March and finding where those deer are and jumping them up and kicking them out, out of their beds. And then really understanding where those beds are and how they use them. That's where deer are going to go during gun season when they get pressure. That's where they're going to go during the later rut or mid rut when bucks are really putting pressure on them. Those does are going to go to those core bedding areas in the late season. That's where they're going to be as well. They're just great spots to find a lot of deer activity. And, uh, so you got that and then you got your food sources, which are pretty important of of course as well. And it's just trying to, it's always a game of how close can you get to the bedding area without spooking them, but also be in between the bedding area and the food source. So that's something you're going to have to figure out. Personally, I like to start at the food source. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to figure out where the deer are moving. I'm going to hopefully wait for some snow find some tracks, go, okay, the deer are liking this ag field or they're liking this, you know, food plot or whatever it is. And then I'm going to backtrack those tracks to where I think they're coming from. And I'll start at the food source, sit there one night, deer come out, you know, or deer don't come out. Okay. So they're far enough away that they're not coming to the food source during daylight hours. Now I got to hop on that deer trail and work my way back towards that bedding area until, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 yards. And then I get set up there the second night. And then maybe I see deer, maybe I don't. And if I don't, then I move back further. And you kind of just, what I want to say, you kind of just work that method through until you get to where you're seeing deer. And one of the other big things is you don't necessarily want to walk on that deer trail you want to walk about five to 10 yards off of it and just be able to continually see it. When you start walking directly on that food or on that deer trail, the deer will understand that you're on that trail. They'll smell you regardless of, you know, how much scent protection you wear or whatever. They'll eventually get a whiff of you and understand that you're using that trail as well. And they'll either stay nocturnal or they'll switch up food sources or they'll start using a different trail. So if you can avoid going directly on that deer trail and just walking five yards off of it and paralleling it, making your own trail, that's generally the best way to go. And then you just set up, you know, like I said, 30 yards and then set up the next night and then 40 yards or whatever, 40 more yards until you work your way back to where you think they're bedding. And generally, if you don't know where they're bedding, it's that really thick wall of crap that you don't want to walk through and you're going to make a ton of noise walking through. That's probably where they're betting somewhere in that general area. So that's always the fine, uh, the fun game you play in trying to figure out exactly how far back you have to go off the food source. Cause a lot of times on, on public, they're not getting on the food source until night. And even on private, depending on how much pressure there is, they're not going to be on the food source until night. So it's working off that food source and trying to figure out when they're going to get on there. Um, one of the other things is that, uh, 
morning hunts become pretty difficult in the late season. Kind of just like early season morning hunts, hunts aren't as popular just because deer are generally back in their beds before it gets light. And that's the same thing with uh, the late season hunts as well. Um, deer are generally back in their beds before it gets light. So it's pretty tough to hunt in the mornings. So if I, if you ask me, you know, would you rather hunt in the morning or the evening in the late season? I'm always going to say evening. Uh, you're just generally, you have better success rates in seeing deer and on harvesting them as well in the evenings. So, um, I just wanted to throw that out there as well. Next piece that I want to talk about is kind of generally staying warm. Cause that's always the hardest part. And that's the biggest deterrent for a lot of people is just staying warm in the late season. You know, it's 10 degrees out, it's 20 degrees out, you know, I don't know wherever you're from, you know, it's cold. Um, maybe it's only 30 degrees where you're from for me, uh, you know, 10 degrees with, you know, a nice 10 to 15 mile an hour wind puts you below zero. Like that's the late season for me. And that will generally <laughs> deter a lot of people, especially on public land. You're not going to find a lot of people out there, which gives you a lot of opportunity as well. You know, you, you don't have a whole lot of uh, competition to find these deer. And especially if you're walking longer distances, there's virtually none. So the hard part about that, though, is uh, if you are walking long distances, or even if you're walking short distances, how do you stay warm once you're in the stand or do you use a stand or a blind? That's another thing. The first one I wanted to cover is how do you stay warm with your clothing and your gear? Uh, biggest complaint I hear is your feet get cold. So feet, your feet getting cold is generally a function of sweat. Uh, the more moisture you have on the body, on your body, the colder you get. So if you have, you know, if you're wearing the standard like knee-high boots, uh, those things are great at keeping water out, but they're also phenomenal at keeping water in too. So if your feet sweat, your boots will get wet on the inside and then they'll stay wet. And you really need a boot dryer to dry those out or putting them over a heating vent or something. But one of the best ways I've found to keep your feet warm is actually put them in a, uh, like a plastic bag slot your feet into like, put your sock on, put your sock in a big like bread bag or garbage bag, and then put that into your boot. And then when you get to your stand, pull the bag out with your sock in it and your foot in it, and then set the bag on the ground, take off your sock, put on a new dry sock, put that into your knee high boot. Your knee high boot will be dry because that plastic bag kept all the moisture in and around your sock. And then you just take those bags and those old socks, throw them in your backpack or whatever, and then you should be good to go. And that's a great way to stay warm. Um, those toe warmers are a great way to stay warm as well. Uh, so that's, and you always want to wear like a wool sock, a merino wool, if you can find them, um, any sort of sweat wicking sock, those will help a lot. And then as far as layering goes, uh, I generally wear a thin base layer. And I'm no gear expert, but this is what works for me. So maybe it'll just help you guys, uh, you know, get a better idea. I've played around with a lot of systems lately because you have your kind of your Western systems versus your Midwestern systems. And, uh, and there's there's nuances to the, to the two of them. Um, but this is what works for me. So I will wear... I wear a first light base layer, which is just like really, really thin. And that's just merino wool just to pull any moisture off my skin. And then I have this kind of 
for lack of better word, like fleece pants that I wear. So I'll wear those on top of that. And then I will wear a really thin pair of pants. So a a thin pair of camel pants on top of that. And uh, that will be kind of my legs. And I'll pack in a big pair of like snow pants, essentially. Like that's just, they're just essentially camo snow pants. So that's what I'll wear for my base, for my bottom half. And then for my top half, again, the same merino base. And then I have, um, that's also first light. Then I'll have like a first light merino kind of sweatshirt deal that I wear. Uh, it's just a hoodie. And then I'll also have, sometimes I'll, I have a Kuyu hoodie that I wear as well, or a Kuyu quarter zip, which is also merino wool. So all these pieces are merino wool. I really think it's the best kept secret for whitetail hunters or from whitetail hunters, I should say, because it just pulls all the moisture off your body. And it's phenomenal how well it works. And it keeps you cool. Like it keeps you cool when you want to be cool. It keeps you warm when you want to be warm. It's it's very strange how it works, but it works extremely well. So uh, First Light, Sidka, and Kuyu all make great merino wool base layer systems. And they are expensive, but I promise you if you go and purchase one of them, uh, you, you will be very happy with the results there. So anyway, I wear those merino bases. And then I'll also like, and that's generally what I will wear to the stand is just the, the base, which is kind of like a t-shirt, a thin t-shirt, um, that's Merino wool. And then those two, the hoodie and then the quarter zip. And that will generally keep me warm, uh, on the walk in, you know, when you get out of your vehicle, you want to be cold when you start walking, you know, if you're already hot or you're feeling warm and cozy, you're just going to sweat the whole way in and your sit's going to suck. It's going to be miserable. So you want to be cold when you get out of the truck. And then for my top, I'll pack in, I have a really heavy sweatshirt that I'll wear. Uh, I do have this new Venado is the name of it. Uh, It's a new company on Instagram. Uh, They're out of Wisconsin as well. And it's spelled V-E-N-A-D-O. And they have a fleece, a fleece uh, like button up that I really like. It is extremely warm. So I'll wear that or I'll pack that in. And then I just have a, a camo first light jacket that I wear in as well that has a like wind stopper on it and DWR, I think is what it's called, which is like a water resistance or a water repellent. Uh, so I like to wear that on my outside. Just it's quiet. It's kind of like... Um, Oh, what do they call them? Like the Columbia jackets and the North Face jackets and stuff. It's a really quiet material, but it also uh, is wind resistant and water resistant. So it's really nice. I like that a lot. It's like a, a soft shell is what they call it. So it's a soft shell jacket. And uh, and that's I have that in First Light as well, like I said. So that's kind of my layering system. And I'll pack in those top two layers Um and I'll just throw those in a bag. And you're probably wondering, well, how the heck big is your bag? Because I'm packing in essentially a giant pair of snow pants or bibs. I trade off between the two. Both of them were fantastic garage sale buys. Uh, then I'll pack in my upper soft shell jacket as well as a sweatshirt. And if it's really cold, I'll bring that Venado fleece as well. So I'm packing in essentially four layers. And I have a larger backpack. It's a Kafaru backpack that I use for elk hunting. 
but it works really well in these colder scenarios. And whatever you can do to just pack that clothing in rather than wear it is the best way to go. And that's just to avoid sweating. Like the second you start sweating, you're going to get cold. So if you ever feel your body get warm, you start walking up a hill, whatever it is, uh, and you start like about to sweat, just stop, quit moving, you know, peel off some layers, just don't sweat and your sit's going to be much better. And you're just going to have to figure out how long it takes you. Maybe it's usually a 20 minute walk to your tree stand. And now it's going to be a 35 or 40 minute walk because you just have to take the time to not sweat. Uh, so that's generally my bases and how I set up. Then I'll wear gloves. I have a muff that usually has one or two hand warmers in it. And then I have a face mask that I like to wear. That's all preference up to you guys. And then just, you know, a nice like knit hat or whatever you want to put on your head. But that's generally what I'll wear, uh, for my layering system and staying warm. Uh, if you have any questions on that, please just shoot me a message on Instagram or Facebook or an email. Uh, it's a lot of information to cover, but that's, like I said, that's what I wear. And then I'll walk into the stand. I pack a lot in, I'll walk into the stand. If I'm on public, I got my stand on my back too, which makes it even harder to not sweat. So you even peel even more layers. And I've had times where I'm just like, you know, I use a, I use a arrow hunter saddle now. So I have just like four climbing sticks in that saddle, but I'll be threading layers in and out of those climbing sticks and wrapping them up just so I can be as cold as I can when I get out of the truck and still be motivated to go to the tree stand and, uh, and just not sweat. So that's the, that's my layering system. And then the next question is a, a tree stand versus blinds. And this is something on my last podcast, the breaking point guys, Dylan and uh, Brennan, really kind of brought to my attention is like late season, it might be very advantageous for warmth to just sit in a blind rather than sit in a tree. Generally, I've always thought, you know, I need to be in a tree because it, you know, decreases the odds of a deer seeing you, decreases the odds of a deer smelling you, and also gives you a better vantage point so you can see what's coming. But if you're hunting a food source or really close to a food source and you can set up a blind, ahead of time, you know, it's going to be less work getting into the stand. So less sweat, you're going to be warmer in there and you're going to have the same opportunities that you would from a tree anyway, because they're coming out to a field. So I might be trying a blind this winter. I've never done it before because I've never really had the opportunity on a piece of private ground. So uh, I'm really looking into that. But if you are in a tree, you know, um, having that wind resistance is that much greater in your gear because you know that wind's going to slice through you if you don't have any sort of uh, wind resistance and it's just going to pull heat off your body and that's just no good so and one of the other things i hear a lot is like oh i bought this sidka system or i bought this first light system and it sucks like i bought these 1200 gram thinsulate boots but they suck like they don't keep my feet warm the reason for all that is sweat. You know, if you stop the sweat, your 1200 gram thin slate boots are going to be phenomenally warm. If you stop the sweat, your Sidka system or your first light system or your Kuyu system is going to be phenomenally warm. It's, uh, 
it's it's just all about that sweat. So I wanted to throw that in there quick because when you're sitting in a tree stand or setting up a stand, you know, that's what's really going to get you is that sweat. Um, so I, you know, I think I'll be trying some blinds out this winter, uh, out on the property, setting up on, we got a couple, I got one, two, three cut cornfields. They're still standing now, which is kind of outrageous in December, but I'm really hoping the farmers are going to cut them this year and, or I should say pick them. They have picked a couple of the soybean fields, but I'll be setting a blind up or two on different fields around the property just to see if I can actually, uh, you know, hunt deer out of them or, or get a deer out of a blind. And I'll also be making some makeshift blinds on the ground just because in general, you know, you're going to have less wind and uh, less sweat if you're on the ground, you know, you just walk in and sit, sit down versus having to set up a tree stand or something like that. And I have done that plenty of times late season as well on public ground. I just kind of go out there and because I don't want to deal with the sweat, I'll just sit on the ground or I'll have a makeshift blind, you know, at a deadfall that I made, you know, a few weeks before or maybe over the summer or whatever it is just to avoid that sweat. Uh, so that's the tree stands and blinds. And then the last thing, oh, I was going to talk about the second rut. So I've been doing a lot of research on this, uh, just because I haven't filled my buck tag and generally how the second rut works. If you haven't heard of it, um, it's kind of just like an extended rut generally, uh, in the Midwest, you're thinking November 1st to about November 5th you know, 18th or so is like prime rut. Like that's when the rut's going. That's when bucks are really hot and heavy and looking. And then from the 18th to about December, you know, first or so it's kind of slow, which is when Wisconsin's gun season is, was this year. And then from December 1st to about December 10th or so is what people call this, like to call the second rut. And what that is, is uh does, that came into heat, but were not bred in the first kind of initial rut, there's, they will cycle again and they will come into heat again, 28 to 30 days later, which is December 1st to December 10th, somewhere in that time frame. So they'll come back into heat again, and then bucks will pick up on that scent and you know, they're off to chasing again. And then also does or fawns of the year. So fawns that were born in 2019, they come into heat. They actually be reach sexual maturity and come into heat December 1st to the 10th. So that is the other um, piece of that is that happens with the second rut is it's does of the year or fawn doe fawns of the year, as well as does that weren't bred in the beginning of November are now coming back into heat in early December. So if you were seeing a bunch of fawns, uh, you know, all season and you're waiting for that big mature doe, but you weren't able to get her. Well, now those fawns can definitely bring in big bucks because, you know, if they, if they're in heat and they're giving off those scents, you know, big bucks will find them and they'll come try to breed them for sure. So that is generally how the second rut lays out. And, uh, you know, if you're seeing rut activity or something like that, that's, that's what's going on. And, and lucky for you, you know, I've heard of a few people personally that I've talked to, you know, you, you can read articles, you can, you know, watch TV shows or whatever about it all the time, but to know people personally 
that have harvested good bucks during the second rut is is pretty rare at least i don't know very many i know two guys that i know off the top of my head that have and both of them said yeah man it was astounding i just had a, a fawn come through and right behind her was a giant buck nose to the ground like he was coming after they didn't even know it existed they were just out hunting during this time frame so anyway that's the second rut um so it does give you hope that those big bucks will still be moving for sure the last thing uh, I wanted to talk about before signing off here. We're about 30 minutes or so. Hope I'm not boring you yet. Is, uh, yeah, yeah, that was a stupid line. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> uh, but uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about was moving your trail cameras. So I spend a lot of time with my trail cameras on scrapes uh, up until now. And now I will generally move almost all my trail cameras to food sources because I want to find where those deer are, um, where they're feeding. Cause like I said, everything's going to be shifting to those food and just trying to survive the winter now. And if you can use those cameras to pinpoint exactly what trails they're using to go to and from a food source, you may have, you know, a 30 acre, 40 acre cornfield, but you don't know exactly what trail they're using to get up into that cornfield you might have to drop three or four cameras out there so that the you know the one saturday night or the one sunday night you get to go out and hunt over the next you know a couple weeks especially with all the holidays and everything coming up uh you drop those four cameras then you go out there and you just check them simultaneously you know exactly what trail they're using you set up and hopefully uh you kill that night so uh, i move all my trail cameras to food sources at this time I might leave one or two on scrapes or outside bedding areas. I am looking the big non-typical buck that I was after. His name, I named him Groot because he looks like he has roots coming out of his head. And uh, he was shot on October 24th, but the shot was low. And I have a trail camera picture of him on the 24th. He was actually shot at 7 a.m., I have a picture of him at 11 a.m. on my property and he wasn't dead yet and the hunter never found him and I have never gotten a picture of him since. So in the summer, I had pictures of him in what I believe to be kind of his core area. I was getting a lot of pictures of him pretty much every few days, getting pictures of him, um, getting videos of him, hitting a scrape in August. So I think I know generally where his real core area is. It's there's two bedding areas that are, uh, you know, a few acres in size, and I'm going to leave a camera on each of those just to see if I can come get him, you know, coming in or out of those bedding areas and see if he's alive or not. But then, like I said, the rest of my cameras, I have eight more cameras that are all going to go to food sources. And just figuring that out. And I did get permission from another neighbor. He wanted to bunny hunt our property and po possibly bobcat hunt our property. And I traded him hunting his field edges and stuff like that because our property butts up to his field. So I traded him field edge hunting rights so that I can shoot on his property. But, you know, the stands and everything or the blinds will be set up on my property. So uh, we'll see how that shakes out. We, I, I did get that permission, which is really nice. Uh, it's nice to have friendly neighborhood landowners um, and not just a bunch of kind of jerks about no hunting or anything like that. All the neighbors around me hunt, which is nice. 
um, and bad at the same time because <laughs> they all hunt. So I had four bucks on my target list. Two of them are dead. One of them was wounded, like I said, and uh, the third, the third one I saw once. But you know, he, it's entirely possible he's dead by now too. So uh, there's just yeah, there's a lot of hunters there, a lot of good hunters. But um, but anyway, I got those rights, and we'll just see how that shakes out. So uh, the other big thing with cameras, trail cameras, you know, put a decent size SD card in there. But if you're not using lithium batteries, those are what are going to make you real happy come time to check those cameras. Uh, in the cold, just your standard Duracells or Rayovax, just your standard batteries are going to die from just from pure cold. They'll quit working for days and I've had it happen plenty of times and it's just so frustrating. So if you spend the extra money, get the lithium batteries. I know it sucks. You're going to pay like, I don't know, 20 bucks for an eight pack or something like that versus like six or seven bucks. I'm totally off, but I'm exaggerating the price difference, but you're going to pay a lot more, but at the same time, you're going to have the confidence that the camera is still working when it's, you know, five degrees out or 10 degrees out versus not working with the Duracells. And then, you know, you wasted two weeks of pictures when you really wanted it. So that's my other, uh, piece on the trail cameras. And I think I covered everything I wanted to today. Uh, sorry, it's been such a long gap between podcasts, just a lot of stuff going on with Thanksgiving and then had a couple, uh, podcasts guests come up and then they had things come up or I had things come up and we just couldn't make it work, but we got a few more coming up here over the next week or so. Um, and we're mainly be talking late season. We'll be sprinkling other gear and other things in there, but uh, a lot of it's going to boil down to late season and how people can be more effective late season. I have my ideas, I have my tactics, what I like to do and how I like to pursue uh, deer in the late season, but other people, you know, have different tactics, different strategies, different ways that they find success. And that's what I'm going to explore over the next couple of weeks. And uh, hopefully you guys can pick something up from that and become more successful yourself. So that's it. Appreciate you guys listening in and uh, I'll catch you next time.